Hey, welcome to the One Life Podcast. We talk about things from One Life Church, but ultimately things that we think can relate to you and your one only life. My name is Sarah Inman. I'm one of the co-hosts of the podcast. I'm joined as always by co-hosts of the podcast and our lead pastor, Brett Nicholson. What's up, Brett? Well, you know, I'm thinking about the fact that I missed the last one, so it's been a while. Oh, yeah. Did you listen to it? I did. Yeah. At least half of it. Oh, okay. Well, we had fun. It was was just because I went with the drive. That's kind of how I do podcasts. I get that. Yeah. I had uh, Chris Shadowin and Jimmy Marshall. Jimmy you did, did not yeah. want to be on the podcast, but uh, he came and joined, and it was good. It was good oh, no, it was good. Uh, yeah. the, the stuff I heard was was good. I was glad Chris got to be on there. People got to know him a little better. Absolutely. And uh, today we're joined by Dr. Braxton Hunter. Hey. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Brett, you want to tell us a little bit about what we're talking about today? Yeah. Uh, so uh, we are doing these uh, services called One Life Explorer Edition, and they just are about that. It's kind of creating an environment where people who are exploring the Christian faith from the outside looking in, they can come in an environment where we'll share uh, reasons why we believe it ought to be believed. And uh, Braxton is, among other things, he is an apologist, someone who defends the faith. And uh, he does that on YouTube. He does that in conferences. He does that in debates. He does that in books. He does that in a lot of places. He's been on here before, uh, but we did feature him yesterday. Uh, uh, with material that he had originally gotten together for a debate that he was going to be in and at a conference. And um, and I, I, when I heard that it was going to be on that subject, I thought oh, that was fascinating. It was on the subject of consciousness and how it can possibly be evidence for the existence of God, the existence of the soul, existence of uh, the afterlife. And uh, that seemed like a fascinating enough topic that mm-hmm. we spent some time converting it into uh, a service. So uh, Braxton does all those things, and he's also the president of a seminary in his spare time, and, uh, and has a family, and lives in the same condos that I do. Yeah, that's, that's right. right. That's, that's another claim. Not the same that. unit, yeah, but the same. The same yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> condos. That's why yeah, it's right. plural. That's right. But he does own little missional community so, there. Uh, that's the right. We are neighbors. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, and so at the toward well throughout the whole experience, which you can find um, on. The One Life Church YouTube channel, you can find the the One Life Explorer edition. It's called The Problem of Consciousness. And I know Braxton's going to be featuring it on Trinity Radio on YouTube as well. Um, you can watch, and obviously we'd love you know to hear your conversations, but we wanted to give space for people to ask questions. One thing we've been doing with Explorer Edition, it went really well with our first one, and uh, we opened up, we had uh, some people send some questions, so we thought we'd just have some conversation. I will just be reading them. Um, and doing my best to read all of these words. Uh, this is, you know, it's a really good conversation. I think people, um, it's interesting, you know, that they really want to ask some of these questions, but I think they're looking for a space to do that. I think hopefully we gave them a space to ask them here and, um, we're excited to share those with you today. So. Um, yeah, I was very impressed with the with the quality of the questions and the, the thoughtfulness of them. You know, like I said, good luck with some of the words. Yeah. But I mean, people processing on a deeper level, and I, I love the fact that they were obviously thinking about it. So. Yeah, I felt that way too. Every Friday on our show, we do a live stream, and it's mostly Q&A, question and answer. But um, I thought, hey, in a local church, the kind of questions we get might be um, closer to the bottom shelf than what you would get on a philosophy and worldview podcast, but they're not. These are very well yeah. put together, thought out questions that are relevant questions that we need to answer. And one thing uh, I wanted to mention and have you guys just talk about briefly before we jump into the questions. Um, you guys spent months preparing for the One Life Explorer edition and you guys met weekly uh, with a team of people. Can you, I just think it's important for people to know this wasn't something that just kind of like, oh, we're going to do this on a Sunday. Like there was a lot of work that went into that. Can you share a little bit about what, what that was like? Yeah. Again, the material, I, uh, I'd always wanted uh, Braxton to do something like that at our church. And then uh, when I heard about the material that he had coming out of that debate, I thought, wow, that'd be a great subject to go with. And so, because I also know that he spent, uh, just on his own, spent 
a long time. I mean, mm-hmm. months all by itself, just mm-hmm. uh, getting uh, yourself where you're knowledgeable of the topic itself. And I hate it for you to waste that knowledge, uh, you know, and, and be able to use that for. So it started there and uh, he agreed to do it. And then so we brought him into a creative team and and that included uh some of the guys from trinity uh and uh some people on his staff and people on our staff and we just kind of sat in a room and we looked at the material and then we thought okay this is really thick this is um this is not simple stuff speaking of the bottom shelf i mean so how do we convert it over into a more um accessible uh format so and and braxton to his credit was very gracious and humble and and took the coaching and uh, wrote things out and we'd come back and say I don't know that sounds <laughs> that's still yeah. way over people's head or whatever else and it's not trying yeah. to dumb it down because people aren't dumb it's just it's dealing with category of thought that most people aren't used to mm-hmm. and so how can we do that in a way and so we just went through that whole process and um, you were okay with it right you yeah it, I, I, I think it was a great blessing because what I'm used to doing with apologetics material you know I was a pastor I was a youth pastor, then I was a pastor, then I was a traveling evangelist going around preaching. And when I got into apologetics, one of the biggest difficulties is in the 20th century, in the United States anyway, um, and particularly in the Midwest, there was this notion that, well, everybody knows that Christianity is true, even if they're not a Christian. And, you know, God will thump you in the back of the head if you don't watch out. So make sure you do what you're supposed to do and all that sort of thing. And there and there was this wide acceptance um, that okay, well, whether I'm a Christian or not, Christianity seems to be the religion in the United States and, and, and that my family's in. And it was just like an acceptance of that without much open atheistic um, objection to it. Now, that was happening at the academic level, obviously. Those conversations were going on. But for the average church person who was in, you know going out and doing work, um, going to church on Sunday, had friends who might not be believers. Um, it wasn't as much about whether Christianity is true as what have you committed to Christianity yet. So in the 20th century, most of what we got with apologetics was like responses to cults um, and things like that, but not so much what we would call natural theology or apologetics to show that God exists. And um, <clears throat> so when I write an apologetics-based talk of some sort, I usually have to do it about 10 times before I, I see what hits, what doesn't, what works, what doesn't, what makes it understandable, what actually just confuses people. And what this process did was it allowed me to streamline that. You all did that for me during the process. So by the time we got to the stage, hopefully what was presented was um, what I would have gotten to after 10 or 15 times right, <laughs> presenting this that stuff. way. Yeah. 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 Okay. Didn't feel like we were saving you time, but maybe you were we were saving. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. That's right. And then the, and then the rest of it was just sort of the creative elements and, and things like that, mm-hmm. where we thought, okay, how can we bring this alive? What would it look like to put some things on video and music and all the rest? Cause that's, that's kind of important to us around here. So sure. when you finally do all that and, and really work it through and then you decide to do things and then you have to go through the pain of actually, uh, assembling it together and Sarah is a part of that. So yep. with the creative uh, uh, department and uh, yep. working with video and working with uh, things that go on the screens and um, there's a lot, a lot of moving parts. And didn't somebody said that, didn't they? Someone from another church that is, uh, you know, kind of maybe cut from the same cloth as one life was yeah. here and said, I know what went into that. She did. Yeah. yeah. She came and asked me a bunch of questions actually about how, mostly all on the creative side. And uh, it was really interesting and fascinating to hear someone who, 
came and said, I know that took a lot of work. How did you guys like do this? How'd you do this? Where did this come from? You know, how long did it take to make this video? Um, and thankfully, you know, we've learned a lot of things of like, hey, we have some content we've created in the past. How can we reuse it in certain ways, which I think is so smart to be able mm -hmm. to do. But I think this one was so different because we realized, at least our team, we realized that majority of the people are probably going to watch this through a screen more than they are going to watch live in the room. Um, and trying to think, how's that going to show to people um, via screen? But that's, you know, through YouTube or through campuses. Um, and it's it's just definitely a, a new kind of normal, the next normal right. to try to figure that stuff out. So we're still in the process. And I think we learned a ton, but it went really well. And um, it was one of those things, you know, for even for me personally, when we said the word consciousness, I'm like, who's asking those questions? Like, I'm curious about that. And then we hear that, you, I heard your content. I'm like, this is great. Like, these are questions that I have. I just wouldn't have thought, oh, that's a consciousness question. Mm. Maybe I'd have a question about like where that came from, but I wouldn't have thought of those. So, and I think some of these questions kind of get into that people a little more yeah. practically. So let's jump in. You guys ready? I'm ready to go. All right, we're gonna go with this first one. Um, it says, how is consciousness developed in a newborn? Is it innate or learned through experiences? Does epigenetics show that certain conscious experiences can be inherited? So how do you want to do this, Coach? Should I, just, <laughs> should I just go for it? Well, I think you should go for it. And if I think of anything profitable to say, I'll say it. Otherwise, I'll just sit here very quiet. You always, you, all, you are Brett Nicholson. You uh, always okay. have profitable things to say. Um, yeah, so this actually brings up some super interesting stuff. And this is what's great about the podcast is that we get to expound on some of this that we didn't get to roll out in the main event. And um, so when it comes to a newborn, I, we're talking here about a newborn human. That's important to state because we do have questions about animals here later. Yep. But in a newborn human, the question is, um, so, the, so they, the questioner says, is it innate? Like his consciousness is an innate or is it learned through experiences? Well, in order for someone to be, to have experiences from which to learn, they would have to have some level of consciousness. So uh, what we're talking about with learning, going through life, and even the development in utero would be the development of this capacity for consciousness more than the more than um, more than consciousness being like something that's added at a particular point into the mix. The capacity for consciousness is already there. One of the things we talked about in the in the discussion, the Explore edition, was that um, when you're when you're talking about the importance of the brain, the brain is like the apparatus. It's like the machinery, the computer that serves up the data so that in your conscious experience, you can make choices about it. And so we would expect that as um, a, I would say a, a baby is developing in the womb, obviously the limitations of that hardware is going to is going to impact the level of conscious experience that the uh, that 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 baby is going to have throughout that time. But at the same time, it's not to say that there's not a conscious uh, a conscious agent there. That agent is there that is going to develop consciously and develop conscious experiences. It's just that the development of the hardware hasn't caught up. But now, where this really gets interesting is this very question has prompted hundreds of years of debate among Christian theologians about what is it, how is it that we, that our souls come to be here? Like, how is it that we develop these souls or do we develop them? Are they applied by God? And there's two basic, simple, quick uh, views on that that I can share. One of those is called um, creationism. Now, if you're familiar with, with talk about evolution and science and Genesis 1 and all that, that's not the type of creationism that we're talking about. The creation of the soul is what we're talking about. So um, there is a school that says 
when the when uh, it may happen at the moment of conception, but God basically applies a soul to this person, so they have a physical body and a soul. And there's biblical data that talks about God knitting us together in the womb, and depending on how woodenly you want to take that, could be a, a an indication that this is what's happening. But what it could also explain that those biblical pieces is what is called traducianism. Now, we don't need to spend a whole lot of time on traducianism, but I want to give it to you in case you want to look further into this. And I think it's a fascinating view that says, look, just as the designer put us together as human beings in such a way that through reproduction, we would, we would get this genetic material from mother and father and develop in utero like that. Well, the same designer also may have set it up, this is what the tradition says, such that the soul is a part of that process. Whatever substance, non-material, but whatever substance the soul is, uh, it, it could come about that same way. And real serious traditions think that you can actually learn something about your soul by thinking about your body because the soul is kind of like the blueprint for what you're going to be. And so if we, could, if, we could, if we could look at your physical body, if we could remove your soul from your physical body, and if then we could see your soul with spiritual lenses, it would be recognizable on the Traducian view as Brett Nicholson, <laughs> perhaps with hair, but Brett Nicholson right. or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I don't think so, because I think in, that's the perfect creation is the bald man. <laughs> Heaven, we're not going to have hair. But, uh, but the point is, that that's a really interesting idea, because what it would make sense of is it would answer this person's question really in a satisfactory way, is that that's all a part of what it means to be born, is that the soul is a part of that process from the jump. But it also explains why, and this is something we didn't get to cover yesterday, congenitally blind people patients, people born blind, who then later have near-death experiences. And there's actually been an academic study on this that are able to then describe visually what they experienced during their near-death experience. And they could talk about what the doctor looked like or what he used or whatever. Well, if, if the soul is kind of like a blueprint for you, and if we could remove, you know, move your soul and then observe your physical soul, uh, if these people having near-death experiences are exiting their body, it would explain how it is that they claim to have these sensory experiences like sight, touch, um, hearing the voice of God or something in a way that would make sense without their physical body because the soul is kind of like, um, it's you in another, in a, of another substance than your physical body, but it's like, it's like if we could see that, we'd be seeing you. And this body is like a, a shell that wraps around that soul. That's the Traducian view. The bottom line is, if, if uh, you're wondering about your, your own life, the important thing to know is that even when a newborn is not conscious in the way we think about consciously being awake right now and having conversations, that child is still a conscious agent in that part of what it means to be human from the moment of conception is that this consciousness is baked in such that it will develop over time. And so I think we can really think about newborns as, and people that are still uh, unborn children who have not been born yet, I think we're still looking at something that bears the image of God, something that has an identity that's going to remain the same throughout their life, and is developing more and more their cognitive abilities with their brain, but is a conscious agent with a soul. So that's probably more information than anyone wanted, but that's actually a fascinating discussion. What's the right view of how our souls emerge? Is it traducianism, or is it creationism, that God just creates a soul and applies it to you, basically.
So in, in that, help people with the, the the second part of the question. Does epigenetics show that? Yeah, yeah. That's that. I'm glad you brought that up. I forgot about that. So epigenetics, the idea that you know, what's happened throughout your genetic history, like even before you were born, uh, things that happen with your parents, experiences that they had, things that happen to them genetically, uh, changes that occur over time. To what extent does that impact all of this? There's two ways we can understand this question. The first one is okay. Look, if my, this isn't really epigenetics, but just because there's not a lot of clarity among with some people who might ask a question, not saying that about the questioner, there are certain things that our parents do or our grandparents do that absolutely have an impact on us and our conscious experience. One of those things would be um, if if you know your mother was using a particular drug while she was pregnant with you, you could be born with an addiction to that drug. If, you're, if your family lineage genetically, there's a predisposition toward anger because of serotonin and dopamine levels and all of that, um, that could be something that's true about you as well. Um, but the notion that they might be getting at is this mysterious idea that uh, we could actually pass on memories from previous generations to uh, your current generation and that you might dream of a memory that your grandmother had or something. I don't know what's going on there, and I'm not a neuroscientist, but in terms of what we've discussed here, it wouldn't impact it because uh, whether if it's not true, it certainly wouldn't impact it. But if something like that is happening where I have a memory that was genetically passed on from my great-grandfather or something, well, I don't know if that's possible, but if it turns out that that is the case, Christians would think that your memories are stored in your brain and thus stored on an aspect of your physical body like you would have a CD with a song burned onto it. And so the notion that something genetic and physical could be passed on wouldn't be that surprising and it wouldn't bother us with the notion of the soul. Um, it's just an interesting subject to think about and to talk about. So um, that'd be the most honest answer I could give to that. Well, I'm, uh, mostly, be honest. Okay? <laughs> so it's very, 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 very important. We want to make sure. Yeah, you're right. Now, now with that, um, you've seen these questions. Would mm -hmm. that relate to this other question talking about um, fathers of cycle uh, analysis believed we have a shared subconscious with all of humanity, past and present? Is that the similar type of question, or is that a different? Not so much, because in that case, and let's go ahead and talk about that one. Yeah. So the questioner is saying, look, it seems to be that some of the influential thinkers, and they mentioned Jung and Freud here, uh, thought of, uh, this this shared conscious underpinning and that sort of thing. The the response I would have to something like this is number one, I'd like to see the evidence that that people like that uh, would present as in defense of that position because they're making a claim. What they're making the claim about is they're claiming that okay, you have a conscious experience, she has a conscious experience. Um, everyone that, that is living and thinking and perhaps without certain problems or medical disorders is having a conscious experience. Um, but there's also this secondary conscious person that is the shared conscious experience of everyone in the world or something. Well, in philosophy, we have this thing named for William of Ockham that you're familiar with called Ockham's Razor. And the point of Ockham's Razor is when you're trying to figure out the answer to some particular issue, some phenomenon, some thing that you're trying to explain. You only want to consider as many variables as you need to to explain it. So like if we're trying to figure out the beginning of the universe and I say, well, God is the cause of the physical universe, you might say, well, how do you know it's not 10 gods that are the cause of the physical universe? Well, there's actually a great conversation we could have about that, but at the very least we can say, 
because we only need one to explain the universe, <laughs> right? There may be others. You may want to think about there being others, but there only needs to be one to cause the universe, right? We shave away those others with what's called Occam's razor. That doesn't, you know, or like say you came home and the, the floor was wet and you think, okay, I see um, in your bedroom, the floor's wet. And you say, okay, I see my wife's towel hanging up over there. I bet she walked through here after she got out of the shower. Okay, that would explain it. But then I say, also, maybe there's a leak that, that, and already it's been patched up and I don't see that. Well, why do you need to posit this extra leak when you already have a good explanation of why the floor is wet that's likely your wife walked through after she got out of the shower? So in a, in a similar way, we don't really need to posit some subconscious realm from which all of our consciousness, you know, can, can relate. What we have evidence for is that we each have consciousness and that, uh, and that we can interact with each other. And I think we have reason to think that there's a conscious creator, but we don't need to posit a third unnecessary variable to explain this, like some shared consciousness under the table. Right. So, uh, and that, I think it segues nicely into the uh, a question that I enjoyed, and I think probably a lot of people do think about on a number of levels, and it's the one about animals, because yeah. and it, cause it gets into defining even what consciousness is and what qualifies as a soul, and I know mm. there's a debate out there about that. There's different schools of thought on when you say consciousness uh, almost equals soul, well, does that... You know, obviously, animals have different levels of right. what we might term consciousness. So, therefore, do they have souls? Mm -hmm. uh, we all know that dogs do and cats don't. I think that's the kind <laughs> yeah, of that's the school I think of thought. That's, right? okay. as now well as we'll any, get some real, real now. questions. So, let me add to that, as well as anyone who thinks that pineapple belongs on pizza, right? Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, that's right. All right. So, you want to read the... Yes. Uh, do animals have any degree of consciousness? Not the same as humans, I know, but some pets get really attra uh, attached to their owners and are sad when their owners are away, etc. Other animals mate for life. Is that strictly the brain wiring or is there some affinity for their mate? If it's affinity, does that mean a small degree of consciousness? Yeah. So, so f first of all, let me make a distinction with the term conscious that is going to come up in other questions as well. And that is that when someone is asleep, um, they are in a certain sense, they're unconscious, right? We're, you know, they're, they're, they're asleep. They're unconscious. If I knock you in the head and you're knocked out, you're unconscious. But in a separate sense, I can still say about Brett Nicholson, whether I'm around him or not and know whether he's awake or not, I can say at any given moment, Brett Nicholson is a conscious agent. Because even when you're sleeping and unconscious in the colloquial use of the term, like we use it every day, well, he's unconscious, she's unconscious, you're still a conscious agent. And in fact, you're still having conscious experiences in your dream of a certain sort because you're dreaming about colors and sounds and things like that. They just don't map to reality. But in fact, there are some things you experience when you're sleeping that are actually a conscious experience of what's happening in the waking world, like uh, lightning. If you've ever been in a dream and it's, there's a thunderstorm outside and you, 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 you heard the lightning in your dream, okay? That's kind of a conscious experience. Um, so I want to draw a line of bifurcation between when someone's asleep or knocked out and they're unconscious in a colloquial sense versus are they a, a conscious being in general? And that's an important thing. Now, when it comes to animals, I think it's obvious that in that colloquial sense, our animals are conscious. My dog is thinking about things. I don't know to what extent a neuroscientist could probably help me understand that in a greater way. What is his brain capable of? And this is where there is a little bit of controversy even among Christians who talk about the soul. And so I'm going to say this, and then, Brett, if you want to clarify what might be your view, if, if that's necessary, <laughs> or maybe you just out there need to answer this on your own. 
But I think part of what it means, and, and terminologically, biblically, like part of what it means to have a soul is to be a living being. Uh, in our case, what we're familiar with most is a biological living being. And I think any uh, creature on this planet that has a brain, anything remotely like a human brain, is having a conscious experience and is a soulish being. And so when I look at my dog, I think my dog is a soulish being. I think my dog has a soul. I think my dog um, is limited by the hardware of his brain to how robust that soul's expression is. So the Traducians we talked about before, they'd say, well, that dog looks like a dog, acts like a dog, and has a dog brain because that's the soul God gave to that creature. But in any case, the hardware of that dog's brain is a dog brain. It can't, it's just not capable of the processing, the computing that a human brain is capable of doing. And so the expression of the soul is gonna be limited in that way. If you go back to a mosquito, it's limited even more than my dog is. If you go to a bonobos uh, ape or whatever, a monkey, I don't know which one the bonobos, the, but these higher primates, they seem to have even more robust of an experience that is closer to what ours is. Well, they've got brains that are, that, that are wired more closely to what ours is. And so I think that what we're seeing with the animals is, yeah, you got a soulish creature there. You got a creature with a soul. The thing is, they're gonna be limited by the brain capacity because remember, we Christians do think that the brain is important here and that's a very valuable part of this. So I think that when you have a dog that seems to express uh, commitment, love, loyalty, yeah, I'm not surprised by that. We get the, the real question people wanna know, and there's a book one time titled Wet Noses at the Pearly Gates, and I thought that was a great title. That's a solid <laughs> title. Will my dog or my cat, uh, God forbid, well, I shouldn't say that, will my dog or cat be in heaven with me? And the answer to this is unfortunately, philosophy and theology and Bible don't give us all the information we would like to have. And so I'll tell you what I tell my children, which is I believe that our dog has a soul. And if you want our dog, Indiana, to be in heaven when you get to heaven, and if God wants to do that for you, he is perfect capable of doing that for you if he wants to. And C.S. Lewis, my <laughs> understanding is, had the, had the idea that part of what happens between any two humans, but it can also happen with animals, is a bond, a soulish bond, and that, that God could consider that. But of course, he's speculating too. The bottom line is God can do it if he wants to, and yes, I believe your animal has a soul. So in that, in that case, for me, we have to maybe define soul. Yeah. Because... Uh, when, because when you say that, when I think of soul, I, I define that as, first of all, immaterial. Mm -hmm. Like we're not talking about neurons and, and electrons and, and physical molecules. stuff. Yeah, it's not physical makeup. There is a is a is a call supernatural. Yeah, there, there's there's something that is not made up of the stuff. So what you would say is, my dog has an immaterial quality inside I think so. her brain. I think that. Okay. But here's what I think. I'm, I would also go the extra step and say, I think that there is, uh, there's some interesting conversations about the difference between a soul and a spirit, if there is such a distinction. And I think that would be where we'd have a conversation of what might be a little more unique to humans, even over and above animals. But I think that was that, my next question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> go ahead. No, my, my next question was, okay, so what's the distinction between human soul mm -hmm. and uh, my dog's soul. So I think the difference would be you have a redeemable spirit and I think that the spirit and the soul are, are both, you have an, basically what we want to say to clarify to anyone 
when we're trying to talk about this, you have a, you, we are substance dualists, which me is a fancy way of saying you have a physical substance and an immaterial substance is what you were just expressing. Right. And so within that immaterial substance, I think, and this is how William Lane Craig talks about it, you have your soul and your spirit is an aspect of your soul. So I would say that while the spirit is of a human being, a spirit is something that a human has, I don't know to what extent a dog has a spirit. When we use that term, what we seem to be talking about is the part of you that can be redeemed, the part of you that can be held morally accountable, those kinds of things. And I think my soul is redeemable. I'm capable of sin, repentance, and redemption in a way that I don't think animals are. So in, in that sense that we're making the distinction between spirit and soul, mm-hmm. both immaterial, but one is redeemable. Right. See, because yeah. I, I was a big-time dualist most because uh, I always thought the, that the Bible equated soul and spirit together. So yeah, so distinctions so like my dad, uh, who's also a theologian, he he always talked about being a trichotomous person. That's the term we would hear a lot, you know, right. body, soul, spirit. And I think we are trichotomous in terms of uh, properties in that way, but in terms of substances, I think that we have a body and a soul. It's just that within that substance dualism, there is something. If you want to call it the spirit, if you think that that. Uh, doesn't make sense of the biblical data. What does make sense of the biblical data one way or the other is our animals are not moral agents. They're not capable of um, repentance in the way that we are. And of course that right. would require a cognitive level that I don't think any animal has, but uh, except for perhaps the human animal, if you want to use that right. terminology. No. But I think there's something about humans that's different from animals and it has to do with our relationship with God. In fact, in Genesis chapter one, when it talks about being made in the image of God, the image of what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Um, the theologians often love to shove a lot of baggage onto that terminology because right. it's ambiguous. It seems ambiguous to some people, but the way I think it makes sense to figure out what's a uh, what the image of God is is to think about what is true about us that's also true about God that is not true about animals. And I think you get there um, robust creativity, robust intellect, free will. I think this uh, ability to be redeemed. Our minds can be conformed to the image of God, according to Romans 12 too. Animals can't do that. And so I think that aspect of it is what makes us um, different from the animals, whether you want to call that a spirit or just something that's true about our experience. I think we can connect with God in a way that animals don't. In the, in the way that we can relate uh, and we can uh, be forgiven of sin and we can repent okay. and we can become a part of the church and a part of the corporate body of Christ. I don't think my dog can be a part of the corporate body of Christ. <laughs> my dog might be able to, but not your dog. Say, sorry, I met your dog. <laughs> That's, um, we've got about four questions. Not about, we have four questions left. Um, I'm going to jump to one that I know Brett and I were just chatting about a little bit before we started um you said you had actually thought about this but yeah i was i was sitting there and then i forgot the text number i was going to ask it and (laughs) it's probably joking there but um uh at the end of life with dementia and alzheimer's my mother seems to lose her brain and body function as well as her consciousness weeks before her passing how is that possible through a christian perspective yeah so this one we want to be delicate with because it's hitting people where they're at. I mean, I just, I just, there's been three deaths in my family in the past four weeks. And so, and one of those was my, my only remaining grandmother who had an experience very much like that. And, and so I want to be very cautious about people's feelings. And I also want to say that I'm not a medical professional. And to the extent that we talk about in any of these questions, end of life issues and when it's okay and, and how do we unplug and all, all that kind of language, 
I would just say use reason, um, uh, pray about those things, but also consult with your doctor, right? I mean, that, right. I think that's, we want to say that. Um, but when it comes to someone who's struggling with Alzheimer's and dementia, this goes back to, for those of you that were at the Explore edition, if you had an FM radio, right, that's the hardware, and then the signal comes through the radio, if you damage the radio, the signal isn't going to sound the way it did. It's going to be disturbed in some sense. And, um, and, but you didn't destroy the beautiful song uh, that was coming through the radio. And in a similar way, when someone has any particular um, uh, chemical problem in their brain or anything that's happening, any deterioration, anything that results in that sort of uh, a situation where the person doesn't seem to be acting like they once did or they seem to be struggling and, and remembering the past more than they are the present... Uh, that's like the FM radio deteriorating or getting damaged, and it doesn't mean the beautiful song of, in this case, my grandmother's life is not still present. It just means that it's being distorted by the hardware. Mm. Now, there's something here that in this question that I caught that was very interesting. Um, the questioner says something like, and I, I don't see it here in front of me right now, but... Some, Fourth one. Okay, yeah. Um weeks before passing so she seemed to lose her brain and body function as well as her consciousness weeks before passing now there's two ways that this question could be interpreted right one way of interpreting it is she literally was unconscious and being uh, perhaps fed fluid by an iv and perhaps food in, in other ways like that and she was literally unconscious for weeks mm -hmm. before she passed um, or it could be that the person doesn't mean it quite that literally, and what they mean is she just be, it was like she wasn't conscious as the same person. She seemed like a different person. If that's the case, then that, I think, is answered by the hardware being uh, distorted. If you mean she was literally unconscious um, and, and perhaps being kept alive or um, nourished uh, secondarily uh, by machinery or, or by uh, medical professionals, then, then the question is, at what point did the soul exit the body, so to speak? At what point did this person actually die? And was it before, uh, you know, the, the machinery stopped supporting it? Was, it? was it at some point prior? Sometimes we can get some impression of this by brain scans and, and what sort of brain activity is going on. Not always, and I'm not a neuroscientist, so I wouldn't want to speak to that, but I would just want to say, how does the Christian response to this work? Well, in the case of brain damage or in the case of uh, deterioration, the answer is that the physical body is still experiencing the ramifications of the fall and the curse. And in this case, uh, this, this person is aging and, and this is a part of the natural fallen condition. Um, and I don't think, by the way, I think if we're smart enough to recognize this person has that sort of a situation, and so if they say something blasphemous, for example, or something, I think if we're able to judge that, God's able to judge that and see, okay, this is not how this person would be thinking under normal uh, circumstances. But if it's the case that we're talking about someone who's being kept alive, I don't know at what point that person's soul exits their body because in some cases, and this may not be the case here, Someone is completely kept alive by machinery, and at that point, the Christian answer may be that that person is still very much in their body, or it might be that, that God's already taken that person home. Where I would want to be careful, again, is where do you make the determinations then, knowing that, about end-of-life issues? And I'm not the expert to talk about that. I think reason, uh, prayer, and listening to medical professionals is probably the best thing to do there. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a question that um, probably would 
be a similar answer, uh, talking about people who are in a coma or brain dead. Mm. Um, with coma, I think there's still brain activity. They aren't conscious of the world around them, though. Whereas their soul, what's it doing while they're in a coma? Uh, same question for brain dead people. And they said, thanks, which that was nice. Yeah. <laughs> so, so brain dead people, like I, I assume what this person means is someone, this is the example we just discussed, like someone who's totally being kept alive yeah. by machinery. The, now, with comas and maybe with comas anyway, it is certainly the case that we know of these amazing things where someone's four years on comes out of a coma or something and they go back to living a normal life. You know, we, there's movies about that kind of stuff and that sort of thing does happen. And so what that tells you, I think, is uh, in some cases, this person is very much still uh, a conscious agent in their body. And to the extent that they're conscious of the external world, I'm often told it's very possible they can hear you. And so right. make sure that you speak to them and stuff. So they're, certainly I'm not surprised if they have a dream world or something like that, but even conscious of the external world. That's why it's so important to be cautious about when we make decisions about even loved ones in those situations is because I don't know. We do have those cases, but in a case of a brain dead patient mm -hmm. um, where perhaps it's been weeks or months or years and we're just keeping this person alive with uh, this body alive with machinery, it may well be that the soul has already been, uh, is already with the Lord. And I think we would like to believe that uh, in any case. And so, yeah. Yeah, I actually I have, uh, I was really sick in college, uh, three days where I was basically out, but I still remember some things from that moment. Mm. Uh, I still remember people that came by and I can remember them talking, but I don't actually remember I can remember, I have some memories of it, but I don't actually remember it happening specifically. Wow. Were you considered so. in a coma? Um, not specifically, because I said I was still responding to some questions, but I don't have any, most memories are not there. But yeah, my mom said I was pretty much out. But um, but you yeah. were conscious of people being there and stuff. Uh, yeah, wow. yeah. Kept hearing the same song. It was a Justin Timberlake song. It's kind of weird. But, <laughs> um, I don't know why. What Do you remember, what, wait a minute. Do you remember what song it was? Gosh, I can't remember off the top of my head. I was trying to think about this yesterday. Was it Cry Me a River? I don't know. It might have been. It was about that time period, okay? It was yeah. like 2003, 2004. When you're in that state, though, because I always wonder, like, even with someone with Alzheimer's or whatever, what level of you are in there experiencing yeah. the things that you are? Like, like for instance, were you, did you feel kind of trapped in your body? Like, hey, that person's there. Someone please change songs. Or <laughs> was there like... Yeah, a little bit. But for me, I mean, it's that, like, it sounds a little bit like a movie, but people are always saying, like... They're talking to people, you can fight this. Like, and there's a sense in your mind, like I can come out of this, but you can't at the same time. Mm. It's like this weird, like trapped feeling. Wow. Like you wanna you wanna wake up, you wanna breathe on your own, you wanna do all these things, and yet you can't. So But so. you were conscious of yourself in there going, Yeah, I'd really like to get out of this. More mess. so that like I the music. Yeah, yeah, it felt like a like I was there but not there. Um, it's hard to explain. Yeah. I wasn't wow. planning on talking about that. <laughs> well, no, because it's first of all, it gives us a first person insight yeah. into this. And then secondly, it does again, draw the uh, distinction I want to make between a conscious being as such that has conscious capacity versus someone who is colloquially unconscious, right. like they're in a coma or asleep. And in your case, you know, it was like all the medical professionals knew, no, no, she, she's, she may well come out of this, mm -hmm. right? I guess that was the expectation, right? She's going to come out of this. Uh, she's very much still a person yeah. with a soulish yeah. experience. Yeah. So powerful testimony. Here I am. Yeah, yeah that's true. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But there was a you in there experiencing mm -hmm. that. Yeah. And that's where I'm always curious and we kind of equate with the soul that there's somehow is a, there's always an I inside all these mm. things. Even if it's distorted, 
I'm watching it be distorted, mm-hmm. which yeah. I guess we'll, we'll, we need to come up with some kind of way to communicate if any of us are ever in that. Is there a signal we can use or some code word <laughs> or something? Like, yeah. All right. Yeah, sure. You think about that. Yeah, yeah. We'll have to come up with that. And then all of the people that are watching and listening can be a part of that as well. You know, yeah. We'll just have this thing. Uh, yesterday you talked about panpsychism. Uh, mm-hmm. as a word that you used. And uh, someone says that with the theory of panpsychism, if particles are conscious, how am I as the sum of all these parts and particles conscious? Is it almost like the particles have a collective consciousness that equal my consciousness? Hope that makes sense. Yeah, so um, so, so the question would be to a panpsychist, and by the way, panpsychism is not a view I accept, or I don't think any of us accept here at the table. It's just one view that I mentioned yesterday, and it's the view that says, Maybe the reason we're able to be conscious is because everything's conscious on some level. And that doesn't mean that like electrons are having an experience of the world like we are, right? But they, um, but they have an element of consciousness. And so, uh, the, yes, the view is very much like if, are you saying that like if a person thinks they're their physical body, like forget this whole discussion, the average secular person out there who just thinks they're their physical body in their brain, are you saying that all these atoms make up me? The answer would be, yeah, kind of. And in a similar way, the panpsychist would say, yeah, those atoms that are also conscious or have a conscious element to them make up you. And, uh, but they would say that there's something about the brain that is, that, that is, that, that is the unique um, uh, organization that is necessary for these conscious potential or these conscious particles to express human consciousness. Yes, it's just a complicated way of doing it. The problem is, so th- this is this is a good thing for the podcast. So, so we're talking about substance dualism: physical substance, immaterial substance. Mm-hmm. Okay. The uh, panpsychist is a substance monist, which means they only think there's one substance. But that substance is both physical and conscious. Right. The problem is there's no demonstration of that. <laughs> there's no experiment that shows that. Philip Goff, who, is, who we played a clip of yesterday, saying we don't even have the beginnings of understanding how complicated electrochemical signaling could result in consciousness like this, um, he's a panpsychist. And he's saying that because it, he's, trying to, he's trying to express how it is that, that I hold this view, I, I don't know how we're conscious, maybe this is the best way to go, and so they're working on that. One of the positions within panpsychism is a view called panprotopsychism that says stuff isn't conscious, but uh, if you put stuff, but everything is conscious possible, so that if you put it together the right way, it becomes conscious. So these are views that are very much on the cutting edge of current philosophy of mind, and these guys are trying really hard to figure out exactly what's going on so that they can... Uh, so that so that they can present a more um, a more satisfactory theory, but currently the biggest problem with it is what's the evidence other than it would work? It's kind of like if you're familiar with the multiverse. There's a view out maybe there are multiple universes. Well, they come up with that because they're trying to explain how it is you get one that's life permitting, which is so unlikely. Our answer is God made one that was life permitting. But the only reason we have to talk about a multiverse is there's no evidence for one. It's just that would kind of maybe explain things a little better. And I think that's what's going on with panpsychism. So is, is it formed out of a commitment to naturalism being, I've got to come up with an explanation that doesn't import God or any of that sort of stuff. I'm, I'm trying to stay in a, is it a bit of a punt in a sense? I mean, like, 
I we don't know, so we've come up with this. Yeah, I don't think they would say it that way. Right. So people working in philosophy of mind, they're aware that there are substance dualists like us, even right. some that aren't Christians and are even atheists. They're substance dualists. Right. They just, they're what we call uh, um, non-naturalists. They're not naturalists. They believe right. there's, there's spooky stuff, right? There's, there's soulish stuff. In it. But, uh, th but they're aware that those people are there, and they're aware the naturalists are there. And they're What they would say is just, look, we're committed to what's called methodological naturalism. Right. Methodological naturalism, for those that don't know, is a scientist who happens to be a Christian is still committed to methodological naturalism when he's doing chemistry or whatever. In other words, we're not paying you to try and figure out the nature of reality in terms of the supernatural and all that. We just want you to, within the natural world, give us the best natural explanation of what's happening here. Right. And so even in philosophy, you might have someone who's committed to a methodological naturalism and say, I'm not bringing in anything like that. What can I explain? I feel like that's my job to see what I can explain about the mind um, without appealing to that sort of thing. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So. All right, we have one more question, and right. uh, this one kind of talks a little bit about um, some of the four questions that you brought up yesterday. That people, the first four problems we talk about consciousness. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so Braxton mentioned that there are other non-soul-based hypotheses of consciousness. I'm curious to know which of those hypotheses, including the ones discussed in the sermon, is the most viable. Ah. Perhaps that is one of the ans one that answers the most of the four questions. And with that, what is the apologetic response to the most viable option? Mm. I love this one, and here's why. Because as I mentioned yesterday, there are more than more options than what we're able to talk about here, but we just don't have a whole weekend to spend on this. Right. One one uh, view that I actually think is is pretty interesting. Well, first, let me answer the way you expect. There is a view on naturalism that an atheist naturalist could hold. And that view is non-reductive. It's like a non-reductive physicalism or an emergent mind sort of thing. So the way they think about this is your mind, your conscious experience is a real thing. And it is, uh, and so we're not talking about something imaginary or illusory like Alex Rosenberg, who I quoted in, was, would say. Instead, it's kind of like if you have a magnet, the, ma the magnet, the field over the magnet right? If we put shavings, we could see that field. And that field, you could put your hand through, you know, it's physical, it's obeying the laws of physics, but you could put your hand through it, you don't see it, you know, that sort of thing. That, that's sort of like what happens with our brains. Our brains give rise somehow to this subconscious uh, experience. The thing is, what we're still not able to figure out, we, I say, I mean, I mean, naturalists doing work on this, that what they're right. still trying to figure out is, what do you mean when you say that? What, what do you mean it's like a magnetic field? What field? You know, what, what is that field? You know, that's, that's one view. And so that would be the response is, what's your evidence for that? And then the response also would be, that would still only explain, it's on naturalism, it would only explain of those four problems why it is that when you damage the brain or affect the brain, it affects conscious expression. Now, that would be the only thing it doesn't answer the other four. One that I think is pretty interesting, and there are Christians who hold this view. Um, I don't hold it, but I'm not entirely close to the possibility of it, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's the correct view, is Christian idealism. Um, Christian idealism says that in one sense, everyone's, everyone that's a Christian is an idealist because what you're saying is mind came before matter. There was a mind, God, who created everything. Right. But in a deeper sense, idealism is the view that 
Okay, if if you're familiar with first, per I know you are. If you're familiar with first person shooter video games, I am. Example. I'm familiar. <laughs> yeah, and Brett so, is too. I'm, I'm, yeah, Brett's okay. All right, video cool. Video. I, I didn't mean to not cut you out. remotely yeah. on her level. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, but but when we're talking about those kind of things, what's happening? And this isn't exactly right. Okay, yeah, so I got you. don't attack the analogy. Attack the point of the analogy. Or don't, yeah, attack the point of the analogy, not the analogy. But in the analogy, let's imagine you've got a video game, a first-person video game, and we know that the computer programs are made up of like zeros and ones, right? It's not made up of all the color and all the things. It's made up of zeros and ones that get then translated by the program into the world we see on the screen. So imagine that you've got your first person character who's in a hallway, perhaps of a room, and as you turn by moving the, the thumbstick, the, the world that was behind you, not visible before, but was only ones and zeros, is collapsed into a world of color and, and all the things that you wanna see and interact with in the video game. And so uh, what, and then you can interact. So what the idealist says is that actually, that's what the universe is like. Not that we're in a simulation, but that we're in a particular sort of simulation, the mind of God, basically. That God is, is basically, and, and they use passages like from Acts 17 where Paul says in him we live and move and have our being. And so that, and, and the, interest, the evidence for this view or that's presented often for this is uh, quantum mechanics where it seems like, and this may be more to go into, but it seems like being a conscious observer of things changes things to a certain degree. Right. And uh, we could do a whole show on that. But the idea is that, now the response that Christians have given to that view is to say, well, that means that the death of Jesus on the cross didn't really happen. It means that it was just something imagined in the mind of God. Hmm. And the response that idealists would give to that is say, no, 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 it really happened. If we say about someone playing, let's say, World of Warcraft, if they pick up a sword, they picked up a sword, it happened within the game, but they still picked up a sword, right? And so those people would say that's what happened with the incarnation. Now, I'm not convinced of that yet because that's a kind of an out there, wild explanation of things. But what it would result in is actually a substance monism. There's one substance. But why, this is what they'll often say, why should we think the physical is the one substance rather than the mental when what we have direct access to is the mental information about the world around us as we look and see other people. And so maybe Christian idealism is true and this is all the mind of God. Um, so that's, that's the other response. And I think that uh, you don't necessarily have to give an apologetic against it because a Christian could hold that view. If you wanted to give a response from within a Christian view, you could say, I think that does damage to this view of God or that view of God, or maybe the incarnation isn't as meaningful or something like that. You could go about it that way. As far as a completely non-Christian view, I think uh, emergent, the idea of the emergent mind on a physicalist view is the best, like a, like a, magnetic field out of a magnet, but I also don't know what that means. So that would be right. a response. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, good explanation. I have no idea what it is. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, that's the last question that we have. Okay. So, I mean, yeah. any that popped up for you or anything that like you didn't get to Braxton that you wanted to only to say, I, it's, it's, uh, I realized that in this podcast, the best and worst thing about it is that we can go deeper with some of this stuff. Yeah. And that means two things. That means one, um, I may not be as clear as I hope to be, so I hope that we've been able to overcome that. 
And then the second thing is we get into some areas of speculation about animals and about um, how, how does the ex conscious experience of a human differ from the experience of an animal. Some of this stuff is just tough and we don't yeah. have. I often say, and I know we've got a time restraint and you want me to hush, but no. um, I often say about angels, you know, people ask all kinds of questions about angels. I wish we knew more about angels than what the Bible gives us. Mm. The only place we really find anything out about angels is when they show up in a story and we learn something that way. Um, but the Bible doesn't give us all the information we'd like. Philosophy doesn't either, and neither does science. So with some of these things, the good news is we've got the basics, and we've got what we need to live the Christian life and defend the Christian faith. From there, let's just continue to have great conversations as Christians about these mind-blowing subjects. Yeah, and, and, and know the distinction between those two things. I think about, you know, the Bible says don't go beyond what's written. And I remember, I think it was Francis Schaeffer that said, God did not give us exhaustive revelation. He gave us um, sufficient revelation. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, that's the key. And so we do have those little tantalizing sort of things that say, oh, I can speculate on this. But you got to know when you're speculating and mm -hmm. when you're not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's that's mm -hmm. kind of critical. And sometimes we... we we kind of blur those lines a little bit, and some people take their speculations and make them true revelations and orthodox positions. And yes, my my uh, you know my pet will be in heaven, that sort of thing. Well, okay. Yeah, and uh, I know yeah, that you, you, some of the people that listen yeah, to this show yeah. happen to be uh, Bible geeks and apologetics geeks yeah. um, that I've met in the lobby who say, right. "Hey, I saw you on the <laughs> podcast." And to those people, what I would say is, when you're talking to an unbeliever or even to other Christians, and especially if you're a ministry leader is to point out when you're speculating. I, I, we try to do that here where I say, well, hey, yeah. when we talk about how does God give you a soul, traditionism, creationism, I'm speculating here. you know, sure, And yeah. that's an important thing to keep in mind because you don't want to say, thus saith the Lord about something that the Lord didn't thus saith. Right? <laughs> that's a good point. That's right. Well said. There you go. I also just have to wonder, is the, are these the conversations that happen at the condo? You guys just have some chairs you sit out in. And let me tell Let me let everyone in <laughs> on something. At the condo, we have a meager um, uh, common area that has a pool uh -huh. and some workout. And the, upstairs, it has what we lovingly, Brett and I refer to as the old man room. <laughs> and the old exist. man room yes. looks like a room you would find at... Uh, in, in an in like a retirement center or something with really low lighting, low seats. <laughs> and we go in there and we just, it's just total, to, it's just our, our old man room. Mm. That's and right. that's yeah. where we get the most honest yeah. gut level stuff. Wow. Yeah. Maybe we'll invite we'll you someday. You guys should have a podcast in the old man room. <laughs> well, we, we, yeah. uh, we actually did shoot his one time from there. Oh, did yeah. you? I always tell people when they go in there, you are if you were to go back in time and go to 1979, that's what that room looks like. It really does because <laughs> it has not changed since 1979. <laughs> and that's I love amazing. it. I yeah. love it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Braxton, thank you so much. I mean, I know coming in and answering these questions is you know part of what you do, but I can't imagine that's just easy to get all these questions and just, you know. And another thing is, I don't have all the answers. One thing I sure. said on this show when I was here before is, if you've never heard of a Christian apologetics giving a defense of the Christian faith, and this is the first time you heard of it was this podcast, you could go be an apologist today. You could be a defender of the Christian faith today because even if you're not ready to be an answer giver, you can be an answer finder for people. And so what I try to do is when I get questions, and um, I'll say about this list, um, I gave a call to a friend of mine who does a lot of work specifically on consciousness. I said, hey, let me run this by you. And so I think that we should be willing to say, I don't know, mm. but I'll go find out. It's great. It is. It's good advice. Brett, what's coming up that uh, we want to let people know about? 
I don't know, but I'm willing to go find <laughs> out. Uh, what, what was the question again? What's, what's coming up what's that we're going to let people know about? Uh, what's coming up? Okay, so the next Explorer edition is on December 5th. We are going to do a piece on Christmas. It's how we're going to launch our Christmas season. And we're calling it... Um, a world without Christmas, and because there's a lot of interesting uh, speculation, some of it about Jesus' impact on the world in which we live and how we think mm-hmm. in history uh, that we take for granted. Uh, things like uh, we have a very compassion-based society. You know, we talk about universal health care, things of that nature. Well, that wasn't talked about before Christ came, and we believe that most of these kinds of things came. Charity itself uh, wasn't really heard of very much at all, if if at all, uh, before Jesus came around. And then the next one after that is on January 9th. Braxton's going to come back, and we're going to talk. We're going to take the whole one to talk about near-death experiences because we got into it a little bit uh, yesterday, but I thought it'd be really fun to do one that's just about that whole phenomenon. And and, uh, so that'll be a lot of fun. Sounds like fun. Can't wait. Can't wait for the next, uh, yeah, we've been trying One Life Explorer Editions kind of as an experiment. We've done some similar things in the past, so we want to dedicate one Sunday a month. Um, to just explore some of these questions that we think people have, give them a space to come in and talk about it. And uh, it's been great. We've had two. We're going to do more. So, yep. yep. Thank you guys so much for Thanks listening. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, thank you, Braxton, for coming on. Um, again, if you have any questions or have any feedback, wanna, you can always leave those in the comments or you can email me directly at podcast at onelifechurch.org. Uh, we always love to get your information. And check out Braxton on Trinity Radio. Search Trinity Radio yep. on YouTube, right? YouTube.com slash Braxton Hunter. That's how humble I am. There it is. So you can find it. <laughs> thank you, guys. We'll see you again next time.